0: It's an honor to bring God's word with you this morning. Uh, As I said earlier, I'm looking forward to hearing how uh, how things went in Thailand, having Pastor Adam back with us next week. This week we're starting a new series uh, that that, uh, Pastor Adam has titled Life Together, and we'll be looking at the various one another passages in the New Testament. Has anybody ever studied the the one another passages before? They're... there are quite a few of them actually uh, throughout the New Testament. Uh, I- if you look at, uh, kind of do a search for them, there's about 60 one another statements throughout the New Testament. And, and actually the Greek word that, that it comes from, al- alalon, uh, shows up about 99 times, but it's not always translated one another. And so about 60 of those are, are exhortations. They're S- telling us to do something to or for one another or to not do something to or for one another. And out of those 60, about 38 of them are unique. And I want to read through them briefly real quick just to kind of give us an overview of the, of the landscape where we're, we're going to go over the next several weeks. So the one another's of the New Testament. Be at peace with one another. Love one another. Be members one of another. Outdo one another in showing honor. Live in harmony with one another. Do not pass judgment on one another. Pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Welcome one another. Instruct one another. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Care for one another. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Through love, serve one another. Do not bite and devour one another. Do not provoke or envy one another. Bear one another's burdens. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bear with one another in love. Speak the truth with one another. Be kind to one another and tenderhearted. Forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. Address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Submit to one another. Count others more significant than yourself. Do not lie to one another. Teach and admonish one another. Encourage one another. Build one another up. Always seek to do good to one another. Exhort one another every day. Stir one another up to love and good works. Do not speak evil against one another. Do not grumble against one another. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Serve one another have fellowship with one another. And so we can see that it's a, the full scope of, of life together is, is encompassed in these one another statements. And a few of them are repeated a few times, but one of them comes up over and over and over again. H- how many of you as parents have found yourselves at times when you're trying to make a point with your child to get their attention, you want them maybe to stop doing something and of course, what we ought to say is stop. But what do we say? We say stop, 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 stop. W- we repeat ourselves. Stop, come, 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 come. Bill Cosby, of course, in his fatherhood comedy routine back in the 80s was, uh, was brilliant in explaining why, why and how we do that. And he, he attributed it to brain damage, but I'm not going to go there. Now, in ancient oral cultures, it was also one of the ways that you emphasized a word was to repeat it so you would say it twice or three times and sometimes we see that come through in our english translation when when in heaven when the angels refer to god they say they call him holy 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 which gives us that picture of ultimate holiness and when the when the destroyer comes in revelation and is destroying going through and, and bringing up, bringing upon the world the, the destruction of the world as we, as we know it before the God brings forth the new heaven and the new earth. He brings forth three woes. He says, woe, woe, woe. And that gives us that sense of, of grief and just utter destruction that's coming. And Jesus, when he wanted us to, to pay attention to what he was saying, he would begin a statement saying, truly, truly. Truly. And sometimes when he would want to get a person's attention, he would say something. He would, he would say their name twice, Martha, Martha, or Simon, Simon. He would repeat their name to get their attention. And there are many times when words are repeated in the original language that get translated in English as surely this or extremely that. We, we added a modifier on it, but really in the original language it was repeated. So repeating things is, is a way to, to get our attention. <coughs> And so we'll see this one phrase come up over and over again in our text today. Now I want to set the, the, set the stage for us on, as we, before we dig into the text. Jesus and his 12 disciples are sitting in the upper room in Jerusalem. It's about, 12 hours, or tw- about 24 hours before the Passover will begin. They've just finished a meal together. And Jesus takes off his robe and he washes the disciples' feet. Judas Iscariot has just been identified as one who will betray Jesus and he walks out of the room. And so join me now in John chapter 13, beginning in verse 31. When he, Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have lo- love for one another. Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure. He, he's been preparing them for this for some time. He's been telling them that he is going away, but they really didn't get it. And even at this point, they, they get hung up on that on that announcement that he's going up to a place where they can't go. That's that's a bit of news to them. They've heard him say it to others. And and Peter especially kind of gets hung up on that. And then they miss, I think they miss the commandment the first time he says it. Because as soon as he gives this commandment there in, in the next verse, Peter says, oh, Lord, where, where are you going? And with grace and patience, Jesus goes through and he and he answers their questions and um, Thomas has a question and Philip has a question and and Judas, son of Simon, has a they have this discussion about what where Jesus is going and what he's doing and, and what does this all mean. And eventually Jesus comes back to this commandment again down in chapter fifteen, verse twelve. And we know that John, the author of, of this gospel, he he eventually got the message. And his first letter that he wrote is is rich in this theme of loving one another. In fact, First John, and especially chapter four, can be seen as a, almost a commentary on this commandment. And Peter, you know, who despite his initial distraction, I think he he got the point as well. And in in his first letter, he repeats this twice. This idea of loving one another. Paul wasn't there, of course, but, but we know he got the memo because it shows up twice in Romans and twice in 1 Thessalonians, and it's, it's a common theme in, in most of his letters to the church, to love one another. In fact, 15 times in the New Testament, we are told to love one another. This is something that God wants us to get. He wants us to pay attention. This is important. So we come to the commandment. The commandment is to love one another. And the question is, why a commandment? And is it really new? Jesus obviously saw that love was a was central to a life of faith and obedience to God. He had been asked several times during his ministry what was the most important commandment, and what did he always come back to? What was the highest commandment? He came back to Deuteronomy 6 5 that Keith read for us earlier. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And then he would also bring up Leviticus nineteen eighteen. And the second is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So this commandment given in the upper room, was it was it really new? It's similar to what, what was written in the Old Testament. And in First and Second John, John told us it's not really a new commandment. This is the same thing you've been told before that you had from the beginning. But we'll see in many ways it was new. There's, it's a little bit different. He had, he had added to it as he often did. And Before we, we dig into that, I want to ask one more question. Can we really be commanded to love? How can we be commanded to love? Sometimes I think maybe we take that for granted. Is there anybody here that that doubts the validity of that commandment that we can we can be commanded to love? Isn't love just an emotion? Isn't it something to be felt, subjective? Doesn't love just happen? That's what our culture would tell us, isn't it? That word love is, as we all know, is is overused in our culture, isn't it? We speak of we use the word love to describe our feelings for our favorite food our favorite sports team, our pets, our spouse, our children. And yet, that word has different meanings in each of those scenarios, I would, I would hope. For others, it's a, it's a collection of strong emotions and they, they reserve the use of the word, but often it becomes a, a puffed up cover for infatuation or lust or a selfish desire for someone else's praise. And that's not how the Bible talks about love. The New Testament uses two words to describe love. Agape and phileo are the two primary words used throughout the New Testament in Greek. Agape is an unconditional, self-sacrificing act of the will. And phileo is the the brotherly affection that we feel between, between friends and family. But nine times out of ten in the New Testament, when you read the word love, it's, it's pointing back to agape, to that unconditional love. And that's, that's what we see here, of course, in, in John 13. Paul gave probably the most comprehensive description of agape love. And where's that? 1 Corinthians 13, often referred to as the love chapter. And usually, where, where do we hear that read? In weddings. right? And I, I think we, we had it read at our wedding, didn't we? And in fact, on the inside of my wedding band is 1 Corinthians 13.8, Love Never Fails. It's it's important. And it, it, But if we look at the broader context of 1 Corinthians 13, where he talks about love, it's in the middle of this, this three-chapter dissertation on, on spiritual gifts and roles within the church and, a, and an emphasis on speaking in tongues. And so... 1 Corinthians 13, while it digs in on, on love, is really about life in the church. It's really about how we interact with one another within the church. I think it's worth reading here. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 1-8. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a, a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understanding of all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Going down to verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Jesus also, of course, had taught about love at the Sermon on the Mount. He took that Levitical commandment to love one's neighbors and he, and he expanded it like he did with so many of the other commandments. He said, you've been told that it's, you should love your, na- love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. And then we've already seen his emphasis in those two greatest commandments that he, would, that he brought up over and over again. And in fact, in Romans and Galatians and James, we see that loving one's neighbor is described as fulfilling the law. And so love is tied in with um, this idea of, of fulfilling the commandments. <clears throat> but this commandment that Jesus gave in the upper room is different for three reasons. It's different from this, that commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. First, it the audience of the commandment, consider that. In the first case, when, when we look at the, the Levitical commandment, when Jesus gave that, he was talking to the crowds. He was talking to the masses. He was talking to the Pharisees. And he, in in talking to everybody, he said, love your neighbor as yourself. But here, in the upper room, it's just the eleven. And then consider the, the object of the commandment. In the Levitical command, he says, it says, love your neighbor. But in the Command given to the disciples, it's love one another. This refers to the believers, to the church. Those. This is love that's to be lived out on the inside of the church. The third difference between the the, the commandments, the one to love our neighbors and the one to love one another, is the standard that's given. And that's probably the most significant difference. The standard in this case is to love one another as I have loved you. The Levitical requirement was to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we all know how to do that. Sort of. (laughs) We don't always do it very well. But it's to have the same care and concern that we have for ourselves. In fact, Jesus gave us an example in the parable of the Good Samaritan. When he was asked who is my neighbor, he told the parable of the Samaritan who took care of the the Jew had, who had been beaten on the side of the road and, and cared for him. And so that gives us an example not only of who our neighbor is, but, but how we ought to care for them. But here in the upper room with the 11 disciples on the eve of the crucifixion, when, the hour, when his hour had come, his standard for love changed in that context. Rather than loving as we love ourselves, now he tells us to love as he has loved us. To the crowds, he challenged the people to follow the Levitical standard, to love as you love yourself. And even though we fail at it often, we know how to do that. To the disciples, to you and I, to his church, he says, to love one another as I have loved you. Now, for the disciples, consider how they heard that in that setting. We read it with with the cross in mind, don't we? But in this case, they they were here in the upper room less than 24 hours before the crucifixion. Their immediate context was clean feet. He had just humbled himself to the point of being a servant before them. And so this this created initially probably a, an impression of, of servant love, servant-like love, and that's certainly true. But a few minutes later, as he would continue in this upper room discourse, He would hint at the fullness of his love. And we continue in John 15, starting in verse 12. He repeats the commandment, saying, This is my commandment, that you love one another, as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have, all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Within 24 hours they would begin to fully understand the fullness of his love but not before abandoning him and denying him and doubting him. Do you understand the fullness of his love for you? We can't truly grasp the enormity of Jesus' love without considering the gravity of our sin and the depravity of our souls. Romans 1 reminds us that we have denied God. We have failed to give him glory that he is due and to give him thanks because of who he is. Romans 3.10 goes, it makes it very clear. No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And if you think you have a, a loophole, that that doesn't quite apply to you, Just a few verses later, in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God is a perfect, holy God who deserves our singular devotion, our praise, who ought to be worshipped and loved above all other things. But we, all of us, we fail because of our pride, because of our selfishness, because of idolatry, Because we're sinful by nature. None of us is worthy of God's mercy or love. And because of our sin, we deserve death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But God, because of his great mercy, and according to the gracious plan that he put into place before time began, sent forth his son, Jesus, to be born of a virgin, to live a perfect life as a spotless lamb, fulfilling the law and the prophets, accomplishing all that the Father sent him to do, even to suffer and die on a cross, a death that he took for me and for you that we might live. And we can't begin to conceive how Jesus loved us without first placing ourselves at the foot of the cross and deeply contemplating why he hung there, beaten and bloody. He gave his life so that we might have hope through faith in him. But that faith in Jesus is not blind faith because we worship a risen Savior. Death could not hold him. The grave could not contain him. He rose triumphant to prove that he is Lord of Lords, the king of kings, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the lion of Judah and the lamb of God who brings salvation for his people. That is how much Jesus loved you. Does that mean that we're called to die for one another? Maybe. Certainly our love for one another must be a sacrificial, deny yourself, put the other person first kind of love. Now, Obviously, we can't save one another, but that's, that's not the point of his standard that he gives us. The point is that the church, within the church, we must be characterized by a kind of love that you won't see anywhere else in the world. A supernatural love that points people to Christ. The only place you might see that kind of love is between a husband and a wife. Speaking of husbands and wives, let's turn to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5:25 5, says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So we see the same standard, the same standard of love for a husband to his wife as we are given one to another within the church. In fact, that that same illusion that 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 marriage relationship is, is a comparison of Christ and his church That's the kind of commitment that we're called to have one to another. So so what does it look like to love one another as Christ loved us? Obviously within that immediate context for the disciples, it was given in in sacrificial love as he washed their feet. In the larger context, as they would soon understand, it was that sacrificing love, putting another's needs before your own, even to the point of being willing to die for the beloved. How often do you intentionally seek to show someone honor or kindness or grace simply so that they would know and feel that they are loved? If you think about it, all those other one another exhortations are the unpacking and the explanation of what it means to love one another. Let's consider just a couple of them. Romans 12.10 says to love one another with brotherly affection And to outdo one another in showing honor. We're going to have another sermon on that, so I'm not gonna I don't want to dig into that too much, but love one another with brotherly affection. Galatians six, two, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Care for one another. Ephesians four thirty-two through five, verse two. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God. Therefore, be imitators of, Christ, of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself self up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Philippians 2, 1 through 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was the form, in the form of God, sorry, I started the wrong verse there. Philippians 2, starting in verse 1. And finally, 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 12. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another. Notice there that it's the Lord that helps our love to grow. This is not something that we can do on our own. We need God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit To love like Jesus loved us. Only in the light of the gospel can we show one another God's love and grace. And there are days and weeks and months when we are difficult to love. You know, I don't know why God chose to love me in the way that he does. I certainly don't deserve it. We all should be amazed at the love that he has shown us if we are in Christ. But the point is, we don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. Neither do you. God chose to love me, and so I choose to love you. We love because he first loved us. So we've looked at the commandment, we've looked at the standard of the commandment, and now finally, let's consider the outcome of our love for one another. When Jesus first gave this commandment, he said it three times. The first time, so that we knew that it was a commandment. This is no mere suggestion. The second time, he gave us the standard for that commandment. I, I think it's funny that when, when, when God tells us how to love, he, he literally tells us how to love. He, he gives us a standard love your neighbor as yourself, love one another as I have loved you. We need, to be ex- we need to be told how to love, don't we? But now this third time that he says it, he gave the expected outcome of obedience to this commandment, that by loving one another, all people would know that we are Jesus' disciples, that we are his people, his followers. And really, there's, there's two outcomes we can see here. The first is that by one, loving one another, we demonstrate a growth in our identification with Christ. Not just identification, but really our union with Christ. Loving one another is both fueled by and enhances our unity with Christ. The more we know him and his love, the better we're able to love one another. And the more that we have love for one another, the more we grow in Christ's likeness. And at times the more we share with him in the fellowship of his suffering. In the study that we, my, my home group did over the summer, we, we went through a, a study of the spiritual disciplines by Pastor James McDonald, and we looked at the, the discipline of fellowship. Ever think thought of fellowship as a discipline before? But he, he talked about this, this verse from Philippians 3.10, the idea of sharing in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. And he said that we share in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings when we endure pain that we don't deserve for the sake of someone else. We share in, this, in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings when we endure pain that we don't deserve for the sake of someone else. And we grow in Christ's likeness. We grow in our unity with Christ as we share in his sufferings. In fact, let's go back to John and scan the text between John 13.35 and 15.12 and you'll see that as Jesus explains the idea of, of his going away and he, he promises the, the Holy Spirit, he talks about abiding in him as the divine. The he talks a lot about unity with him and about depending on him, remaining with him loving one another, is one of the ways that we have our unity with Christ. And the second outcome of our love for one another, is probably the most clear as, as it's given here, is that by loving one another, we present a visible witness, a clear Christian witness to those who are outside the church. Now, when guests walk through the doors of redeeming grace on Sunday morning, they should hear and see and feel and even taste the love of God that we have for one another. And notice here in verse 35 that Jesus changes the wording in a a slight but very significant way. He says that we are to have love for one another. This is not a love that we just demonstrate. It's not a love that is on the outside that we just show. This is, love that w- this is genuine, real love that we have for one another. Remember, love is an act of the will, and it's empowered by the grace of God. If there is a person that you're struggling to love, you need to be in prayer about that. Not about them, but about you. We are called to love one another. We must not give in to the temptation to be Sunday morning hypocrites. We put on smiles and pleasant greetings on Sunday. And then on Monday, in our words, in our attitudes, in our actions, we bite and devour one another. Or we simply neglect one another the rest of the week. Love for one another is an everyday calling. People shouldn't have to walk through our doors on Sunday morning to know the love that Redeeming Grace members have for one another they should see it in our neighborhoods when we mow one another's lawns they should see it or hear it at work when we when we talk about the meals that have been provided during a time of difficulty they should hear it in in the courtyard in the in the courthouse or at the hospital or in the schoolyard when we gather together to pray for one another the love we have for one another is a seal of authenticity Behind the words of truth and love that we speak to unbelievers. Our love for one another empowers and strengthens our gospel ministry to the nations. Now, like most of the commandments, we're not going to keep this one. We're going to fail at it, aren't we? We will try to do it ourselves, and we'll get burned out, we'll get frustrated. And we'll feel as though somehow not only have we let one another down, we've let God down. But let's not forget the good news. If you are in Christ, if you have trusted in his shed blood to cover your sins, you are freed from all condemnation. We need to trust not only in his ability to save us from our sin, but you need to trust in his power to strengthen and fill you for the work that he's called you to do. And that includes loving one another. He's called us to do it. He will strengthen us for the task. Let's strive to outdo one another in showing honor. Let's encourage one another. And above all, never stop loving one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, what a what a blessing it is to be in your family. To be called by your name to be a part of redeeming grace, to be a part of your church that you have created, you have established, and that you are calling to, you, to yourself. Father, in the, the standard, that the commandment that you've given us this morning, the standard that you've called us to, and the outcome, Lord, I pray that you would, you would empower us, that your spirit would be at work in our lives. Help us, Lord, to love one another in truth, to love one another in, in everything we do, in our words, in our deeds, in our attitudes. Father, I pray that we would be a people who are known for our love for one another. And Lord, not just for our sakes, but for the sake of those who see and those who will know you because of the love that we have for one another. Lord, we, we focus so much outwardly because you've called us to, to be a witness to the world around us. But Lord, we are strengthened as we look outward. We are strengthened by our love for one another. And I pray that you would would equip us, enable us to live out that love in joy and in a way that builds one another up. Father, I pray that you would be glorified this morning as we seek to love one another, as we seek to love you as we ought. In Christ's name I pray, amen.